Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. If you're in the United Church of Christ, you know that General Synod is upon us, coming to us virtually in July. Some of my colleagues in Encuentros Latinx are submitting workshop proposals, so hopefully they'll get accepted and you'll get a chance to interact with another part of our ministry. Encuentros Latinx is also planning a Good Friday event, and I should have more details about that for you in next month's episode. I have some exciting publication news for myself. I've got a flash fiction piece published in a new print anthology called This Is What America Looks Like. It's a collection of poetry and short fiction sourced from writers from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, or with strong ties to that area. You can buy the anthology on Amazon and Bookshop, and you can add it to your Goodreads list. My piece has also been nominated to be considered for another anthology called Best Small Fictions 2021. So if you can just imagine the energy of the nail painting emoji right now, that's how I feel. All right, my guest today is Pastor Nelson Rabel, and he lays out for us the richness of what it is to be Puerto Rican, the breadth of traditions Latinx people bring to the church, and the journey of his work as an LGBTQ plus ally and anti-racist activist. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Sure. I'm Pastor Nelson Ravel. Uh, he, his. I am a, an associate pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Lodi, California. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? So I'm originally from Puerto Rico, born and raised. My my spouse and uh, was born there as well. We met in Puerto Rico and... Our kids were born in Philadelphia, so they are Philly Rican. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we moved here to California, we are all Cali Ricans. <laughs> okay, yeah. It is just a running theme lately on the show. We have had Puerto Ricans. I'm Puerto Rican too, and it just seems like we're, yeah, just seems like we're everywhere. I mean, we are everywhere on one hand, but it's not intentional. I feel like I have to say this every episode. I'm not just focusing on Puerto Ricans. I want to get, you know, everybody from from all of the countries that Latinx folks can come from. But um, so what is a, a good memory that you have about Puerto Rico, about your family, anything like that? Uh, so it's interesting. There's so many, right? Um, mm-hmm. My, I, I grew up with my with my mother. She was a single mom, and uh, so my father was not a, a presence, a constant presence in my life. He was occasionally, and uh, I guess if it was going with my mother to different. She loved to drive, and we would go just different places. I got to know Puerto Rico because of her. She used to work as a uh, 
organizer for back in the 60s, 70s. She worked for the cooperative movement that was part of the government, believe it or not. The, there was an agency called Movimiento Cooperativista. Or for, I'm sorry, Fomento Cooperativo, which literally means like the promotion of cooperative businesses among pe people, particularly marginalized communities. So my mom knew all the different communities in Puerto Rico who were marginalized, and she helped create a lot of small industries, you know, small economies that were community-based. So she was committed to the independence of Puerto Rico. So am I. Uh, we're not, in that sense, we are kind of like on the left side of politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you will. And um, I guess those moments where we would go and, and just visit, you know, places. I remember going to one of my favorite memories is going to Loisa. Uh, we're Afro-Caribbean, so I'm also Afro-Caribbean. Mm -hmm. uh, so was my mom. And I grew up being proud of my African uh, heritage. So we would go to Loisa, which is a northern town in Puerto Rico, where mostly almost all of the population there are direct African descent from slaves that were in, the, in Puerto Rico were brought by the forcibly brought by the Spanish uh, starting in the uh, early 1500s. And we would go to a restaurant of a family that it was well known. Like they had a, a wonderful restaurant. And I remember going to see the, the crabs that they, they grow. The, the crabs that we have in Puerto Rico are like near rivers and like inland, inland crabs, and they were, they're delicious. <laughs> and I remember going and, and just having a wonderful time with my mom and, and, and just enjoying the, the weather, the, the ocean was nearby, and I don't know, those, those type of events. And, and part of it was like that love for what Puerto Rico was, our African roots, um, our indigenous roots. My mom was very, um, like, protective of anything that had to do with our history. And she marched and she protested. And I was, was also persecuted because of that. So mm -hmm. I guess those memories, like just hanging out with my mom and, and going to different places in Puerto Rico, that, that's kind of like the, the best memory from my childhood. I mean, I have many memories, mm -hmm. but from my childhood, that would be it. Then as I became you know, a teenager and into a young adult, I would say my Obviously with my family, my mom, but also my experience in church. I'm a Lutheran pastor, so I grew up in one of the most, uh, uh, one of the oldest uh, Lutheran churches in Puerto Rico, Iglesia Luterana Sion, Zion Lutheran Church in Bayamón, Puerto Rico, who, by, uh, by the way, is located, the address is number 211, Dr. Hiram Gonzalez, or Iram Gonzalez, and he is my grandfather, so my mother's mm -hmm. father. So is that kind of interesting how the address of the church that I grew up with, you know, I grew up at is the address is the, that has the name of my grandfather, my mom's mm. father. So anyway, just <laughs> connections and how small is the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially Puerto Rico, it's such a small, small island, you know, compared to most other places in the world. And yeah, I mean, one of my favorite places in Puerto Rico, my abuela's family, they go generations back in the mountains and like in, in Coamo, Ibonito, that oh. whole area. That's that's like, yeah, that's one of my favorite places. Every time I think I, I actually got to go to Puerto Rico a lot when I was growing up, mm. my my family, we visited about every summer that turned into every other summer. And I think starting from one of the trips when I was a teenager might have been the first time that I went to my great aunt's house and she lives like high up in the mountains and it's just <laughs> such a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, yeah, you've got like the roosters and 
you know, cats everywhere and all that, all that real, um, all that real country living. Um, but it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's so temperate, even when it's cold in the mountains, you just need a light jacket and it's just a, it's a great, um, it's a really great energy. I, I, I love it. Yeah, no, no, obviously. And, and the, yeah, good thing about the island is that the, you have the ocean, you have the mountains, you have mm-hmm. valleys, you have rivers, you have, mm-hmm. you know, creeks and um, lakes. And there are a lot of, for, for, for an island that is about 111 miles long and 33 miles wide, we have a lot of diversity, biodiversity mm-hmm. and geographically as well. Yeah. And, and just a history, rich history. We, I always remind my, you know, people who have, who grew up here in the U.S., who were born here, that Puerto, San Juan is older than any city here in the U.S., mm. the capital city of Puerto Rico. And the, one of the first churches that was established in the, in the New World by the Catholic Church was in San Juan, mm. um, early 1500s. So not, it's not the first, but it's one of the first ones. So we have a, lot, a long history of, um, and, beside, and before that, you know, we have the indigenous people, the Tainos who lived mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico, who created a very... Complex, and when I say complex, I mean it as a complement uh, society mm-hmm. uh, with beautiful symbolism, beautiful myth of both creation and connection to the land and to the ocean and even to the to the weather. Uh, hurricanes, actually, the, the word mm-hmm. hurricane comes from a Taino word, huracan, mm-hmm. was the the wind, the movement of. Um, it was not the. It's not like a god, the goddess of chaos, but actually the huracan was actually the the movement, the, the wind that uh, she created when mm-hmm. she was upset. You know, kind of like mm-hmm. that was the. It was explained by the uh, by the Taino people. Beautiful, beautiful, you know, history and a society that sadly was you know decimated in the mm-hmm. early 1600s. But it is important, I think. To recognize that our diversity, as as people that people that come from Puerto Rico, we have that diversity. We we mm-hmm. we have that African heritage. We have the indigenous. We also have European, not not just Spanish, mostly Spanish. But uh, there was also people from different parts of Europe that came. You know, we had Italians, we had Irish, we had uh, French. We have all ki- kinds of different European people that also came to settle in Puerto Rico for even Germans for different reasons. So throughout the uh, through our history. So again, it has been a welcoming place. We also have a large contingent of Chinese uh, people who have come and have established themselves in, in Puerto Rico, have been welcomed. They have not been you know, mistreated. Uh, sadly, you know, sometimes people make jokes, but, but mm-hmm. it, it has not, we're not a violent, thankfully, you know, in terms of the racial issues, we, we have, we struggle. There's racism in Puerto Rico. But contrary to what we saw on January 6th, it's not that level of, it's, it's a lot of prejudice. And maybe because we're from the, you know, the, the we as Caribbean people, maybe we may joke of everything, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this, the element of, you know, making fun of people because of their accent, how they look, that that's kind of like some of the things that we have seen. But thankfully, the, the violence is not part of that racism, not to, not trying to say it is good. Mm-hmm. Just trying to uh, trying to make people understand. There's a lot of what we put in in, in uh, sociology we call uh, color, colorismo, colorism, mm-hmm. and that's really part of the 
the, the struggle that many of us who are not European presenting or white presenting have and struggle with in, with our identity in Puerto Rico, where white is seen as the epitome of beauty and or European European style beauty. And sometimes mm-hmm. we tend to minimize African uh, descent or uh, indigenous descent of beauty. So th- those are some of the struggles and trying to, maybe we're going off topic here, but oh, trying to fine. give people a, uh, an idea of what it's like to live in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we do have, it's a complicated history. You know, we, we are the oldest colony, more than 500 years, mm-hmm. 400 under the Spanish and more than 120 under the uh, U.S. government. So in that sense, we're still trying to figure out who we are. And and some of those uh, like different identities uh, coalesce together and we all call ourselves Puerto Rican, but we also identify ourselves with our kind of like our ethnic background as well. So it's interesting mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. It's complicated. It's, uh, it's a painful history as well. I'm not trying to paint a, a paradise, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think it's a mirror of what the history of the Americas is. Con- you know, the genocide, conquer, uh, white supremacy, and also how conquer people have to survive, you know, trying to make do with what they're given in, in, in any particular context. So that's kind of like w- what I would say Puerto Rico is. Yeah, that is a very eloquent way to put it. Yeah, that's, that's just all is a very good way to describe the the complexity. And, you know, it's something that I am growing into day to day. I had an experience. Uh, my A lot of my experience was kind of a sense of cultural distance. I didn't grow up learning Spanish at home. Um, there are various reasons why I wasn't taught Spanish. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of a sticking point for me. And a lot of Latinx folks, especially those who grew up in the U.S. and they're, you know, second generation, um, third generation and so on, kind of have a, a similar relationship with Spanish. That being said, I studied it for five years and I can understand it and read yeah. it and write it pretty well, but just it's not, it's like my understanding is 50-50. I can kind of go in and out of a conversation and I sometimes I understand every single thing that's happening and then the topic changes. And if I don't have the vocab for it, I'm like, I just don't really know what's going on. So that's <laughs> uh, that. And especially with, um, with, Puerto Rican Spanish, because because, you know, you were talking before about the uh, the word for hurricane. And I mean, that is an example of how many words that are unique to Puerto Rican Spanish come from the Taino language and how that is. It's it's not that Puerto Rican Spanish is like completely unintelligible, but between the accent and some of the the phrases, these things that I didn't learn in my Spanish class growing up here in the United States, because in the U.S., I mean, at least in my experience, when I was going through Spanish class, no one ever covered that there are different dialects in different countries. So I was learning the Spanish that they were teaching, which is basically, it's a, it's more of a neutral Spanish, I, I guess, okay. but it's still, you know, I would go to Puerto Rico and I wouldn't, 
I didn't realize until somebody explained to me, like on one of my family trips there, like, oh yeah, in, in Puerto Rico, they, they drop their S's a lot in the Spanish. And like, once <laughs> someone told me that I was like, okay, now I can, now I understand that that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it's not that people are saying, como estas? Like, como esta? and I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Now I like, I can kind of make that connection between what I learned in Spanish class and what I'm actually hearing. Mm. But then but then also I remember, because my mom, she would speak Spanish to me growing up when she was frustrated about something or, uh, <laughs> you know, she would just kind of like rattle something off and I would, would not really understand what was happening uh, except that, you know, the dishwasher wasn't working right or like whatever it was that, or, or the dog did something and she would call the dog all kinds of names. And, <laughs> but I remember, and I think I, I did pick up some level of understanding from just from hearing her talk on the phone with family members, because I remember my first couple weeks of my first year of Spanish class in seventh grade, I think we had just learned como te amas or como te amas and como te ama. And, and because I was, I had that experience of hearing my mom with her Puerto Rican Spanish. I, I think, you know, I like asked the teacher or like, or the, or something, something where my mom ended up having to talk to my Spanish teacher and like, make sure that he was teaching me the right thing. <laughs> like, and it had, it had to do now that I'm remembering it, I think it had to do with like, there was a word and it had the S in it and, it, and the dropped S or, or whatever. Um, but yeah. And then the, I mean, the, the colorism, you know, that you mentioned too, from what I have learned, it's more of a, um, it's more subtle and, and casual, like just in terms of the phrases people will talk about, like, like good hair, bad hair, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they'll, you know, they'll say the, these other things where it's, but it, but it is, and it's kind of hard to, to describe when you're like, until you're in a conversation where those things just kind of slip out, it's hard to describe the vibe for it because it's not said with that, like overtly hateful energy, but it's still something that is so casual and so pervasive. And it's like, I've, I've, I've seen, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. You're saying it's a way of surviving Mm -hmm. Uh, part of it's internalized oppression. It's internalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we were conquered by the Spanish uh, Mm -hmm. also in, when you were mentioning the language. So they're trying to teach Castilian Spanish or, you know, uh, European Spanish. And part of the, the the beauty of uh, and and the challenge, but also the complex history and the fact that we have we were colonized by the Spanish is that we do speak with accents that reflect some of those other uh, groups of people that were conquered or brought in, like African. Mm-hmm. There's elements of other even within Spain, uh, different regions of Spain that you know speak the language a little different, like. You know, you go to the vast region, you go to uh, Galicia, or you go to other regions of Spain, uh, it, it's different. So all, all, already in the language, there's uh, a diver- diversity. And then you include, of course, the elements of um, the historical colonization and the slave trade. And all those accents start to to, to mingle and create a, uh, a very peculiar way of speaking Spanish, which, by the way, I, I believe in Puerto Rico, our Spanish is very similar to the one spoken in uh, uh, in the Canary Islands, because there, we mm-hmm. had a lot of people from the Canary Islands that came to Puerto Rico and kind of like uh, were 
uh, might say, Hibaro culture is mm -hmm. very similar. And even our local music, like Hibaro music and uh, the way it sounds, is very similar to um, the music that you hear in uh, in the Canary, in Canary Islands. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's like com complex. It's in terms of the colors, the... Uh, and when I mean the colors, I mean the, the you know the, the, how people look at color. It's interesting. Like it takes like someone like me who who has African descent. You know, I experienced all, all those things you mentioned. Being told I had bad hair, and then we had to come up with a response, which which was, well, bad hair is the one that falls off. Hmm. So bad hair is not having curly hair. If you if you you can have straight straight hair, right? Mm -hmm. But if you if it doesn't grow back, then oh, right. I'm sorry. But you know, so we 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 were able to even within that you might say non-violent, but there's the violence in in the sense of you're not enough, and that's mm -hmm. kind of like the you know the struggle that we have that the the wider or the more European looking you are, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. We can see that you know in in the history of the island and even today, like. Uh, we have never had a, a black uh, governor. Mm -hmm. That gives you an idea. Mm -hmm. So there is racism and in Puerto Rico, subtle, not violent in the sense of a civil war was not fought, fought for it. Actually, Puerto Rico gained, uh, abolished um, slavery peacefully. But at the same time, like many islands in the Caribbean, that's how they did it. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that there's no violence in the sense of intention or the privileging of a particular way of being or, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of your complexion. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, white presenting uh, Puerto Ricans get ahead mm -hmm. faster than uh, black presenting Puerto Rican mm -hmm. or indigenous uh, presenting Puerto Rican. And that that's just a reality. And we have to, you know, just like the racism we experience here in the U.S., that's a reality where we, we may go. We have people in parts of Asia who want to bleach their their, their skin and, and look whiter. And, and I think what we see with that is an acknowledgement on a global scale of how white supremacy and the imperial models of Britain, the, the United States, and Europe in general, like your uh, countries that have this Caucasian, you know, uh, the majority of the population have been Caucasian, they have truly colonized and, and created this sense of lesserness or being less than uh, someone who's Caucasian. And, and colonized people always struggle with their identity, trying to uh, be more or and being more means uh, being white. And, and that's something that we have to, from a faith perspective, if you were to ask me, that's where the affirmation of God's creation, or when you think, of, for example, about the baptism of Jesus, Jesus God says in, in the baptism, this is my son, the beloved, mm -hmm. listen to him. And, well, that's in the transfiguration, but in the baptism with you, I am well, well pleased. So it is an affirmation of Jesus' identity as the way he is. Mm -hmm. And I think that message is also for us, like God is pleased with who we are, the way we are in the sense of our identity, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation, the way we come out to this world, it's God's, you know, God embraces us as we are. And I think that's something that goes against the 
ideologies of uh, white supremacy and ra racist ideologies that we have seen expressed in the la not only in the last four years, obviously with the current uh, the, the previous administration, mm -hmm. but it's still a subtext of American culture. So we have to be aware of it as people of faith, as people of, of color, mm -hmm. as the BIPOC community. We need to be, be aware of it and, and struggle with that because our um, the temptation is going to be to, like we say in Spanish, mejorar la raza, improve mm -hmm. the race. Yeah. So letting go who you are and become something that you're not or something that is deemed as the epitome of humanity. Like th this is a real human being someone who's Caucasian, white, and, and has certain characteristics versus who we are and the way we are. And I think mm -hmm. that that's going to be our struggle for uh, as long as there's racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah. And it's that is something that, you know, I have been working through just in, in my own kind of inner work, um, because I definitely in this cultural distance experience that I had where it, like it's distance, but not because my, my mom, well, her family was in the military. So she technically was born in the United States, but mm -hmm. she like around when she was 10 years old, they moved back to Puerto Rico. And so, she, you know, she's really from the island. And, you know, like I said, she she didn't teach me Spanish in the house when I was growing up. I live in an area that certainly when I was growing up didn't have a big Latinx population. Mm -hmm. And just there there were the there were these things that and and these ways that um that whiteness was very easily able to to absorb me and mm -hmm. to and to kind of you know make it like like the assimilation was pressing the easy button. Yeah. And I ended up doing that for a lot of my life because I felt this shame about well, I, I can't speak Spanish and, you know, I don't, I don't quote unquote look Latinx because there's, I think there's an idea that, mm -hmm. um, that <laughs> non, non Latinx, well, I'm going to, that, that white people have, there's an idea that white people have of what a Latinx person looks like. Yeah. And if you're, if you're too light, that's not it. If you're too dark, that's not it. So that's something that I internalized. And then, you know, I've been over the past like several years in my adult life, like really just unlearning that and kind of realizing that the the self erasure and that that temptation of, of erasure is is a way of kind of letting white supremacy win from from that angle. And then with that, to also acknowledge the privilege that comes with being able to to vanish in that sense. Um, and then to, but then to resist that, that vanishment is to say, no, I'm not going to let you, you, the, the system of white supremacy do that to me. And then also not to other people who don't have that same privilege. No, and that's so right on Taylor, because my spouse is Puerto Rican, uh, Latinx. Uh, she was born and raised in Puerto Rico, just like I was. And this is the makeup of her family. So her brother and sister, she's a middle child. Mm -hmm. So, so that means trouble. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she's a middle child, but her brother is darker skin. And so is her sister. Mm -hmm. she, she can pass as, as Caucasian or at least white. And then mm -hmm. what is interesting is that the reality, she has told me many instances that when she speaks, right, when, when, People look at her. She's a dentist. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and an epidemiologist. So when she's working and she's going to see a patient and, you know, say it's a Caucasian patient, she has been working her whole life in like uh, clinics that provide low income families with services, medical and dental services. So when they see her fine, as soon as she opens her mouth and they pick up the accent, mm-hmm. there's like a change, there's mm-hmm. like a switch mm-hmm. that's turned on. And I think part of it is that, like you were saying, you know, there's this idea of who we are and uh, as Latinx people. And part of the reality is that, you know, we, we do have, even within our culture, within the Latinx culture, uh, or communities, right? We're a community of communities, right? Mm-hmm. Cubanos, Mexicanos, Puerto Ricanos, Hondureños, Salvadoreños, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. We do have our, um, like, hierarchy. And mm-hmm. again, it goes back to what the Spanish left. The Spanish had more than 20-some categories for, like, I would be kind of like, a, a, you know, they, they had different versions of it later in the, like, Negro de Salón, if it was mm-hmm. a, a black person who, who who was almost who looked white, so they you know kind of like acceptable. They mm-hmm. had mulatto, they had sambo, they they had so many words. I don't recall all of them, but they they had categories for 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 people and you know mestizo if it was indigenous and Caucasian, mulatto if it was black and white. I mean it, it was mm-hmm. they created categories that we still to many degrees uh, and those categories became a hierarchy mm-hmm. and we live with that right so i'm so glad you you have struggled with that and you have you know seen it because the best way to become a even for your own community a good ally and a uh, someone who in a very in a prophetic way or in a, um, a way that proclaims a word of god or a word of hope to a community that has been historically marginalized is to understand our own contradictions so that so we we deal with racism we deal with marginalization without and within mm-hmm. and we have to be aware of both sides of the equation we have to be aware of how both we we need, we need to tackle both one sometimes can overshadow the other obviously because we are in the context of the U.S. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we need to be aware of those inherent uh, issues that we have hierarchies, you know, uh, male-dominating uh, impulses within the some of our cultures, the anti-LBTQ sentiments within our culture. Those issues, we need to tackle them, too. So mm-hmm. even though we are a marginalized community, we, we also have to deal with those issues. The problem is that I see is that when we mention those issues, then, you know, people in the dominant culture, see, they say, oh, see, you're the same. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to be very strong in, uh, in, in denouncing uh, to, to those who may use that argument uh, against us, right? To say, mm-hmm. yes, human beings are inherently, you know, prone to to have prejudice, but but racism is a political thing it, in the sense that, in order to be a racist, you need power, mm-hmm. and communities uh, like the Latinx community, African American community, Native Americans, uh, Asian Americans, other communities in this country in particular, they do not have the power. So we're not, we may have prejudice, we may have you know biases, but those biases are not enacted as policy. Mm-hmm. I think we need to go back to that 
language that the right in the 80s, you know, in response to the um, affirmative action movement, they were good, especially during the, the Reagan era, to kind of like combat affirmative action and say, well, this reverse racism. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that obviously they were doing it with, with, with the purpose of destroying, in some respects, that coalition, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, saying, oh, everybody does it. Well, not, that's not true. As much as I, you know, with <laughs> as much biases as, as I may have, there's nothing I can do to enact those biases in a national policy. Right. And I think that's the issue that we need to, you know, raise constantly. Uh, we've seen it. The police, for example, it, you can have uh, Latinx police officers, Native American police officers. You can have all kinds of police officers, but they, they belong, they function in a system that's enacting white supremacy policies. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's for me, is re- really the, the challenge that we have as uh, not just as people of color, but as people who, and, and for our allies that want to join in and create a, a better society, a more just society, an equitable society, we need to be aware of those issues so that we can face them and, and be honest about them and not be shy about facing the, the struggles that we will see and not mm-hmm. idealize any community for that matter. Because, you know, to idealize <laughs> the marginalized community means that then we cannot like lovingly you know engage with some of the challenges within the community that we we have internally like some of mm-hmm. the issues that i mentioned before mm-hmm. yeah it's great that you bring that up because that actually reminds me i'm currently reading the new jim crow by michelle alexander and she mm-hmm. talks about just all all of that stuff you just you just talked about how you can have people of color yeah. in these systems but you know still perpetuating the system she talks a lot about how how Barack Obama was, you know, kind of a prime example of, of that. Mm-hmm. And she gets into, you know, yeah, he was this, he was this black president and that broke the ceiling and kind of this in, in an almost surface level way. But then there were, there were policies he enacted where deportations just grew exponentially yeah. under his administration. And so just it, it's, that's fresh on my mind since I'm actually reading that book right now. It also, you know, that idealization of yep. marginalized communities, that it also leaves no room for people of color to make a mistake. And yep. it's kind of like, you know, they're held to a higher standard. Yeah. Um, and when and when they do make a mistake, it's like the, the pile on can be even worse. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> it's it's like it really is this like insidious force. I would love to get into... Sure your experiences with spirituality and religion and, you know, kind of your journey as a person of faith, as a a person who is Afro-Latinx and just how that expresses, how that expresses itself in your life. So as a Lutheran, it's interesting, you know, I, I have been able to you know, my family was a nominal Catholic family and I, I did, come to realize later later in my life that my uh, grandfather and my uncle were Lutheran. So there was some Lutherans in my family that I didn't know of. And my mom had visited uh, a Lutheran church when she, the youth group when she was younger, but she did stay in a Catholic church. And the reason I say this is that, you know, the Lutheran church did not 
during the Reformation did not throw out everything that, that smelled Roman Catholic. So, and I, I'm so thankful for that in, in some respect, mm-hmm. in the sense that the, the liturgy, you know, the, the order of the mass and some of those symbols and, and, and the practice was, you know, was, was kept. Now, the challenge is, of course, that that church, you know, Roman Catholic Church and even the Lutheran Church come the Roman Catholic Church comes because of the conquest mm-hmm. by European, in particularly Spanish, uh, the Spanish Empire in the, in the late 1400s, early 1500s. Mm-hmm. And the Protestant churches come to Puerto Rico in 1898 during the Spanish-American War, where they divided Puerto Rico in, in sections. That's why the Lutheran Church is only in the northern, uh, near the metropolitan area near San Juan. We have about, we have about 26 Lutheran churches basically confined to the north in and around the San Juan area. So what that means for me in many respects is that I'm caught up like most Puerto Ricans, we're always caught up between a duality or at least sometimes a triad, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on how you look at it. But I'm going to talk about the duality of being both you know, born in this culture that is deep-seated in the African experience, uh, the African religions, Mm-hmm. Native connection to the land, to, to the nature, uh, through the, our indigenous roots. But at the same time, we were a Spanish colony for 400 years. Mm-hmm. And we cannot, uh, as much as we want to, and this is something that my spouse and I always talk about, we, we cannot deny that. I mean, it's not something that we we can't deny. We, we just can't, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so my appeal to 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 let's say, to that liturgical tradition, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, that, that type of high church, high mass, mm-hmm. it's part of that. And I'm Afro, Afro-Latinx, and I, I love the mass if we have bongos and guitars and maracas and we and um, mm-hmm. we start a party in, in mass, but it, <laughs> with mm-hmm. those. So even in the way I worship, you see, you know, my ideal worship, you have all those elements of African, you know, music, with a high high mass, <laughs> and then yeah. you know, and there's uh, the the smoke, the incense, and na- uh, uh, sound, and we do it near the, the the ocean or up in the mountain. I feel connected to my indigenous uh, ancestors, the Tainos. So it's kind of like <laughs> uh, <laughs> a um, a rainbow, right? Of yeah. experiences and and feelings and uh, connectivity. To, to everything I am and everything that God has made me to be uh, along with my people. And I see some of those elements here in, in I, I serve a congregation here in California, in Lora, which is Northern California, about 40 miles south of uh, Sacramento in the Central Valley. So I have a lot of people who come from the Michoacan region in Mexico. And I think we have been, they have received me like, you know, like a, like a sibling, like a country person, um, like a fellow, um, uh, you know, they call me Mexiriqueño. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I love the community for that reason. And it has been a, again, like learning from that indigenous connection with the devotion to the Virgin of Guadalupe. I consider, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Protestant, mm-hmm. but I, I, I do the service, the mass for the Virgin of Guadalupe, mm-hmm. not just to honor the tradition of the people, but also in many ways to honor women and, and Mary as an icon of the Christian faith, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at it, 
most of the reasons why Protestants do not highlight Mary is because of some of the <laughs> anti-women stuff yeah. <laughs> we carry. So I, I, again, it, it's interesting, right? So you have that duality that I, I call it, I don't want to use the word mestizo, but like mixed, mm-hmm. mulatto. I know that, that that was an insult, but I, I sometimes argue that similar to what African-Americans have done with the N-word, we could do with some of the words that we know. Mm. And, and and do something similar if the community allows it and if the community mm-hmm. is okay with that. But in, in my particular context, I grew up with that word. I didn't see it as, as an insult. Mm-hmm. Even if it was meant as an insult, I did not experience it that way. Mm-hmm. And so we can transform that word kind of like how our African-American uh, siblings have done. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that in worship and in faith, what what I, I see, what I do in my ministry, strive to bring the best of the Protestant tradition, which is this sense of God connected to the people, and the best of the uh, Roman Catholic tradition, where you know God is present in this communal worship act, mm-hmm. which is also in, in many ways. Uh, Part of also the Lutheran faith because of our connection and, 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 and close relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. But in the Protestant tradition, the, the, in the Lutheran tradition in particular, the pastor, the priest, you know, father, reverend, is not, does not carry the church by herself or himself or themselves. The, uh, the, in, in the Lutheran tradition, the, the pastor is granted permission by the community to preside within the community. In the Roman Catholic tradition, the priest carries the church in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those elements of, you know, the best of the Protestant tradition, the best of the Catholic tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, I think they're, they're, the Latinx community, and since both of us, you know, we, we come from Protestant churches, heirs mm-hmm. of the Reformation, I, I think that's an element there that we can bring to the church as a whole and bridge the gap mm-hmm. and create uh, bridges of opportunity for dialogue and for mutual understanding because we're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is when you think that, oh, only this or only that. And, and th- that binary type of thinking is what, you know, the white evangelicalism is very good at. Mm-hmm. And, and to a certain degree, you know, the their counterpart in the most, uh, you know, conservative sides of the Roman church. So we have to, I think, our the, the contribution we as the Latinx community can give to the church from that particular perspective. And then those of us who are Puerto Rican, gonna the contribution of you know the Puerto Rican diaspora and even within the context within Puerto Rico is that we have received, you know, we have been colonized by both the Protestant and the Catholic. Mm-hmm. And there are elements of both. You can have a Pentecostal say Ave Maria Purissima, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> and celebrate, uh, you know, Good Friday, like it, it be, better than a Catholic and then vice versa. And then you can have a Catholic who goes to mass every Sunday, but loves that, you know, kind of like moving and shaking and clapping and moving side to side when they're mm-hmm. singing songs to God, right? When they're mm-hmm. praising and worshiping God. So that's what we bring. We bring that opportunity for the church to see itself in, in the, uh, and I want, I'm going to use the word very carefully, but in the other expression of, of church hmm. that may not be part of its own tradition or institution. I think that's something we can bring 
as a gift to the whole church and, and maybe bring down some of the literal walls that divide us uh, theologically, religion, you know, in terms of practice, worship practices and ministry practices, because there's mm -hmm. a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom in our people. I think they see. And again, uh, I'll use this example of the Virgin of Guadalupe. So whether in the 1530s, the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared to Juan Diego or not, I think that's irrelevant. How do people see the image of the Virgin of Guadalupe today? They see it as the mother of Jesus who came to visit marginalized people. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to start where, where the people are. How, how they, So their faith is connected to that event. If the intention was to pacify, you know, some people have said to pacify the native peoples from Mexico to convert to Catholicism, and, you know, and I, I hear all of that and it's true. But at the same time, OK, where, where are people now? Mm -hmm. How can we use that, you know, not use, but how can we acknowledge where people are and proclaim it or, or, or you know, do it in a way, celebrate it in a way that is liberating, but right. honors where people are? That's going to be the challenge. And I, I mean, that's a challenge that I have in my ministry. That's what I try to do. But I do consider myself to be a Guadalupano in that sense that mm -hmm. I want to honor where people are and, and to dismiss what uh, indigenous people from uh, our communities throughout the Americas believe uh, about God or the saints or how God is manifest in, in, in those events, I think we do a disservice to that community and in a disrespectful fashion. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't know if that makes sense what I'm trying to say, but it's, we need to honor each other. Again, we don't have to agree with everything like that's being said, but I think there's a lot that we can learn without having this binary understanding of about faith, which of course, you know, as, as we all know, in terms of creating a, a culture that is anti-LGBTQI+, is when you have a binary understanding of faith and life, it creates marginalized people because mm -hmm. not everybody can fit those, you know, the, whichever malls, the only two malls you create is people who are in the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think religiously we are in a spectrum. It's like levels, shades of, you know, uh, all the experiences that have defined us historically. And the same thing happens with sexuality, uh, ideology, and every uh, expression of humanity or mm -hmm. human life. And, uh, I think we need to honor that. And, and hopefully my prayer is that we can just uh, at one point so, sooner rather than later, we can just leave behind this idea of having a complete, you know, uh, just a binary way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Very, very well said. Gosh, that was a great in-depth answer. And that is actually a perfect segue because I did want to ask you about your sense of your work and your position as being an ally to the LGBTQ community, especially with your position as a faith leader mm. um, and all of just all of the, the, the weight that being a Christian who is Latinx with all this rich history and then also, you know, being the, this ally and, and kind of speaking against the inherited homophobia that we see in our communities, just what has your journey in that work looked mm -hmm. like for you? Well, interesting. Thank you. That's a, uh, thank you for asking me that Taylor. Before I came here to California, 
I served the congregation in New Jersey. Back in, I believe it was uh, in the, when was the year that the, was it 2009 when the Supreme Court decided that the same-sex couples could marry around that time? That was uh, 2015. Oh, okay, 2015. Well, in 2009, the ELCA, my denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, made a commitment to welcome without hesitation, uh, without any type of uh, you know constraint or, or, or <laughs> limits, uh, people who were in same-sex relationships. So members of the LBTQI plus community, before the 2009 decision by the Churchwide Assembly, had to be celibate. So after 2009, that was, you know, eliminated, thankfully. And mm-hmm. so before that, when I, I got ordained in 2002, and when I went to Puerto Rico, I had a parish down there. And I was an ally of, some people may know him, Pedro Julio Serrano, he's a, a gay activist. So he and I met in a radio station in Puerto Rico. I had a radio show in Puerto Rico back in the early 2000s, uh, right after I came from seminary. It was called La, La Voz Luterana, The Lutheran Voice. And, you know, that show gave me some exposure and I was able to get to know certain people. And in Puerto Rico, I participated and supported very, very strongly uh, the uh, LBTQI uh, plus community and uh, prior events. I attended and supported and was interviewed by different media supporting it and even went to, you know, different radio shows and TV to talk about that and support it. Right. So that was in the in Puerto Rico in the 2000s, when uh, the 2002, 2003, 2004, then 2004, 2005, I moved to New Jersey. I was part of the Justice and Peace uh, Task Force that included L- the LGBTQI plus task force uh, with it. So I belong to that one as well. And I have performed several same-sex weddings in my ministry, including the first one in the township that I lived in New Jersey, uh, right after the uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, voted to, to allow it. And then I also participated in the marriage of a, uh, of a colleague friend of mine who's a Lutheran pastor who's gay. He married his uh, partner who's uh, Latinx, uh, this friend of mine, the pastor, uh, Brett Ballinger, who is uh, lives in New Jersey uh, and Caucasian, but he married uh, Marvin, who is from Guatemala and a, and a migrant. So I was there. I helped in the wedding. It was a three-hour wedding because my good friend Brett loves liturgy. <laughs> we had <laughs> so many uh, smells and bells that you don't want to know. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> but it was beautiful, but it was long. <laughs> I think people loved it. I mean, at, at the end of the wedding. People were like, oh, my God, this is the best wedding ever. And, um, and it was. It was beautiful. I, I got so many ideas out of it. He used part of the Orthodox uh, liturgy in, in the wedding. So it, it was beautiful. So that's how I have been an ally. I have, I have been outspoken. I have been a, uh, an ally. I don't try to, you know, let my voice be the dominant voice on this issue because, obviously, what you want is to magnify the, the voices of the people who are from, from the LBTQI plus community, but I'm there, you know, when they need me, I'm there marching. I created a, a non-for-profit called Anulori, where we magnify the voices of the BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and the LBTQI plus community, along with migrants and any marginalized group. But it, that's part of our mission statement. To, we, we magnify, we amplify the voices of any marginalized group here in the city of Lodi. So 
that's how in my ministry, in my prophetic ministry and my community ministry, I challenge uh, notions of misogyny, uh, racism, you know, transphobia, homophobia, and any ideology of hate. And I'm also challenged by them. I'm not perfect. I, I'm a sinner as well. I need to be, you know, m my daughter does a good job of that every time. She's 19 and she reminds me <laughs> when I act like a, like a, a, a man who <laughs> needs to be taught uh, how to behave every now and then. <laughs> so, and, and, and my spouse as well. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of what, what she has done in that regard. My son is a member of the LGBTQI plus community as well. And uh, that experience uh, has also marked me in a very positive way. Uh, very mm -hmm. proud of, of, of him and what he has accomplished. And right now he's helping plan the, one of the first uh, uh, pride events here in the city of Lorac. Uh, through our our organization, so it's, it's volunteer based. No, nobody gets paid in our organization. It basically, we we gather and we plan events and we you know advocate and we meet with the police to combat racism or and police brutality, which is what gave rise to our organization after the Brianna Taylor and George Floyd death in back in the summer of last year. And so we have taken on all those issues as part of our mission to promote uh, a, a safer community in an area of the country that has a history of racism and has mm -hmm. a history of uh, bigotry. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we're, we're standing uh, firm against those ideologies of based on hate in an area that needs uh, this type of movement. So we're not in the Bay Area. And I always try, <laughs> I always make mm -hmm. a, a call for people who are in the Bay Area Uh, where there's a, a surplus of organizers to move here. Hmm. They're not needed in the Bay Area. You know, I'm not saying there's no need over there. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there's a surplus. And I understand we all want to be where we're safe. At the same time, whoever can, can come and join and, and move and settle here to kind of like lead the... This is the frontier in the sense of the struggles that we're facing this is like a new south in, in many ways and why i don't mean it as a compliment uh, if you look at the history mm -hmm. of this region many southerners moved here right after the civil war and they created a new south economy and that's why our african-american siblings call this region calibama like mm -hmm. a mix between Ca california and alabama prior mm -hmm. to the civil rights movement and further south mississippi fresno So those are things that I have learned from my African-American siblings that with whom I work uh, very closely through different organizations that I work with. For example, our New Lodi, we are partners with Faith in the Valley, which is a faith-based organization uh, that is, is connected to PICO, PICO of California. So we, we're connected. So we, we're trying to build up this movement. And, and this is the region. This is the place to be. I, I tell people, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm, uh, there's a lot of issues in Oakland. There's a lot of issues in, you know, in the Bay Area. I get it. You can get a th hundreds of, you know, you know, thousands of people to march in Oakland and in uh, in the Bay Area. Here is where, where that is hard. You get mm -hmm. a few hundred, you, you, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is where we need to do it. And if you can, come over here. Uh, do the ministry here. Uh, change the minds and hearts here where it's needed because it is hard. And right now I'm experiencing a, uh, a difficult moment because of that. 
So in my own personal life and in my ministry, because it is hard to combat and to confront the racism that you experience in this region, even allies or, or people who, who want to, um, to do the right thing, they're not willing to commit to the level that you, you, you were expecting or that needs to, or the level that they need to be committed in order for, for us to push the envelope, you know, push this, uh, this change even further. They're not willing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just a reality. That's what I've seen so far in my experience here in this region. For the, mm -hmm. I've only been here for three years. Well, yeah, thanks for that insight. And I guess, you know, just to put a point on it, if you are in California and you want to just move, then go right ahead and do that. Um, Give me a phone call and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where to. Right now, just to, if you, if, if you allow me, Taylor, just to give mm -hmm. you an idea. I have never done... And I, I was a pastor before I got here for about uh, 16, 17 years. Now it's almost 20 years. I never done a vigil in front of a house of a person who was harassed because they were Latinx and because they were being told to move back home. Mm. I've done that here. Mm. I have another vigil coming, uh, two in less than three years. And there's other cases that we, we just don't hear about them because people are afraid. And now we, because of the, the pandemic, right, there's a disconnect mm -hmm. sometimes between us and the people. We wish it was not there, but there is a reality of the pandemic. So I, I didn't have to do that in, in New Jersey where I was uh, or in Philly. Uh, not, I'm not saying that there's no need over there. That's not my mm -hmm. point. My point is that me personally, I didn't have to do it as part of my ministry. Here, it is a reality more often than people think. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, that's kind of where th that's the invitation, I guess, the the exhortation to those who are listening that to consider. You see, there's a surplus of, uh, you know, way too many activists in one region of the country. Maybe they're needed somewhere else. Hmm. And so how can people get in touch with you or follow your work hmm. to maybe learn more about that and possibly see if that's where they need to go sure so i'm on facebook uh, my uh, page is public i am who i am i don't hide what i do i'm under nelson rabel uh, on facebook you can see what i cook both in terms of literally the food i eat from the places i go the ministry i do my statements my theology my both in spanish and english sometimes i post in spanish Sometimes I post in English. Uh, I do commentary. Sometimes I have interviewed people, just like you're doing right now, Taylor. I Just to give you an idea, uh, I have interviewed uh, Michael Tubbs, the mayor of, um, of Stockton. I have interviewed one of the consuls from uh, Mexican consulate officials to give information to the people. I have interviewed uh, Professor Raulino Hossa, who's a well-known Chicano activist and professor of economy and po politics at UCLA. And... Uh, bishops, pastors, uh, different leaders from the region, um, candidates. And the idea is to, both in Spanish and English, again, like I, I use both languages. And just to give people, I'm, I'm very active in media. So sometimes I do post when I'm interviewed. Um, I've been interviewed, at least I do an, uh, a TV appearance or, or, or newspaper uh, once a week because of the ministry that we're doing. Uh, like we recently just did a letter to uh, Governor Newsom. And if you heard, for example, Governor Newsom and some of the politicians talk about the need for vaccination, 
of people of color and particularly the migrant uh, workers. I, I was behind that as well. We signed, we, I got uh, the Roman Catholic bishop, Lutheran bishop, uh, Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, a whole bunch of organizations. We sent a letter. I, I redacted it and we sent it to the governor and we, we gave permission to the people that signed the letter to send it to their local county board uh, supervisors because they're the ones who are going to enact the policy of how the vaccine is going to be uh, distributed. So we were able to do that. I live in San Joaquin County, so I already got in touch with my county and sent a letter to them and got a response. Uh, we also saw the same day that it went, it was out in, uh, in NBC, uh, Fox News from Sacramento. So they heard, they heard that we were, <laughs> uh, we were doing this. So that's a good thing. And they saw the you know, the coalition of, you know, churches and uh, community organizations, and that was good. And I believe Pasarina Ramos, uh, Ramos also signed, one of the co-signers as well, mm-hmm. uh, and the UCC uh, also signed, some of the uh, leaders from, uh, I believe, the Fresno region, if I'm not mistaken. So we made it as open and as uh, ecumenical and diverse as possible. So, yeah, I mean, people can follow my my page on uh, Facebook. Again, public, Nelson Rabel, R-A-B-E-L-L. Be as in boy, I always say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that uh, they can see what we're doing and feel free to friend me. I have no problem friending people as long as they tell me who they are <laughs> and what their intentions <laughs> are. But if you get a phone call from me through Messenger, that's the reason why I'm calling. Don't worry. I'm just trying to figure out you're a real person. And mm-hmm. uh and, and see what the intentions are. And so, yeah, they can follow me and, 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 and chat and, uh, and comment and ask questions and feel free to uh, even, you know, ask me if they want to do a conversation like this. I'm always open to do that. Great. And since uh, Rena was name dropped, I do have to say on the show for the first time, uh, Rena is the uh, president of Encuentros Latinx, and she is really our leader in um, helping us with this current incarnation of the of this ministry in the United Church of Christ. Mm. You know, with with her with her leadership, she brought us all together. She organizes our meetings. She comes up with ideas, and she's a big supporter of the podcast. Um, she's always very excited every time a new episode comes out. And I'm just always very appreciative of that. So I would love to just wrap this up by asking you, what do you think that churches need to do better to include and serve Latinx people? It's a great question. When I say listen, I mean a couple of things. I mean that they have to compress. Let me put it this way. If there's a... uh, a Caucasian church that wants to is suddenly, you know, feel uh, that they need to reach out to the Latinx community in order to to survive or, you know, and, and out of fear, not out of love, out of, you know, the first thing they have to do is first love the people, listen, learn. So the three L's, listen, love, learn, because without those three things, you, you what you'll be doing is basically having guests who are never at the table, who who don't have a stake at the table, who, who are not helping you build the table and set it up and, and, and share some of their gifts with you. So if you're the one owning everything that's going on, there's never the opportunity for a true community to develop. And that's always a challenge for any congregation that wants to do 
ministry, ministry with the Latinx community, I seen cases over and over again where that's the case. And that's, it's sad. And, and let me just say this for the sake of uh, the, those who are listening. I belong to the widest denomination in the, in the, in the, in the country. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is 96% white. Whiter than the UCC. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the only mainline denomination that is not as white is the, uh, the UMC, the United Methodist Church. Mm. They're 94. So it's not as if <laughs> it is in the nineties. So we all got a in um, <laughs> plus in uh, you know being segregated and not being diverse. Uh, I wish we got an F, right? I mean, that's what we need. But the truth is, Taylor, that we need the communities of faith to compress their power or limit their power, have a kenosis. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, a word. Is the word that use that Saint Paul uses in Philippians chapter two. When, and I'll read it, if you don't mind, I'll just uh, sure. do a quick uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let me just look for it here in my Bible. It says, let the same mind be in you. And by the way, I'm reading from chapter 2 of Philippians, starting with verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. Holy wisdom, holy word. And on chapter on verse seven, where where Paul says, "But emptied himself." That's the word mm-hmm. in Greek for kenosis, or kenosis is emptying. It's like of, uh, being devoid of who you are and who you truly are. And in this case, Jesus uh, Christ Jesus leaves behind his power, privilege, it, uh, divinity, in order to be among us. And that's what it takes. It's a ken- I, I refer to it as a kenotic moment. We the white. The white church, and I'll be quite blunt, the white America mm-hmm. needs a canonic moment. Uh, is the only way we'll be able to have true equity and justice at the societal level, but also, especially us as Christians, is if the Christian church is not able to model this, struggle with this, and, and, and sacrifice. This is what sacrifice looks like. And uh, creating spaces, the only way to create space Kind of like how the our Jewish siblings talk about creation, where God compresses, creates space for us to occupy it, and therefore there's great there is creation. So because God fulfills everything, right? Fills everything. So the only way we can exist is by God creating the space for us to exist. And I think that's kenosis as well in creation, and and then here we see it in salvation. And then for ministry, we need kenosis. So if you look at it from you know, a theological point of view, from creation to now the ministry of what the church should be about as a body, uh, the, the, the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ in the world, is to have a kenosis, to listen, to love, to learn. And, and it is hard, but we have to do it. It's, it's the only way, and I'm going to say we have to, it's not for salvation, because then... You know, you probably get some kind of uh, Lutheran uh, professor out there trying to say, oh, you're talking about works, righteousness. No, I'm talking about ministry. 
I'm talking about reaching out. I'm talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the how we do ministry. But what are the best practices for ministry? This has nothing to do with, with uh, salvation. It has to do with the fact that if we're not able to model this in our ministry, the, the church will not be able to, to, to have the impact that, that it should have and, uh, and to model for society what the society itself needs to do, which is to listen, learn, and love. Hmm. What a great, great way to wrap up this conversation that, quite frankly, could go on and on and on. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing all of your insights and all of these great thoughts. I have notes about things that I need to look up um, and, and get into myself. So, so thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you, Taylor. It's been a pleasure and uh, I hope this continues and more than happy to come anytime. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.